And this is another mm -hmm. common uh, suffering that people going through RCIA experience, especially when they come from families that are full of pastors and um, missionaries and those who have been to Bible college and seminary and things like that. Because they're not going to, but they're not going to see what you're doing as being following Christ into His church, and uh, they may go toe to toe, want to go toe to toe with you. They may want to pull you back. They may see what you're doing. Maybe even as you know, joining it's it's so terrible. But there are some out there who believe the church is the whore of Babylon, and and they may even say these sorts of things to you in it. It will be heartbreaking. It does hurt the heart because you have come to realize and are coming to realize that this is the church that Jesus founded. Hello and welcome back to Deep in Christ. I'm your host, John Mark Grodi, here at the Coming Home Network International, bringing to you another discussion about this, our daily task of picking up the cross. Uh, a couple months ago, Kenny Burchard and I uh, did a long series on discipleship as a, as a cruciform shape, the cruciform shape of the Christian life. And in many ways, this series we're doing now, this discussion, Denise Bossert and I, on redemptive suffering is really building on that concept. Suffering is part of the human life. And embracing the suffering, picking up that cross with our Lord Jesus Christ, that's part of every Christian life. That's just what discipleship looks like. Um, but in this series, we're particularly looking at, at suffering. And uh, Denise is uh, retelling some of her own story uh, to bring out some of those themes for us to discuss. You know, and I was thinking, Denise, uh, again, suffering is such an important theme for the, for the life, our life in general, our Christian life in general, because we all have to wrestle with it, we all have to learn from it and deal with it. Um, it's it's very rev relevant to our work here at the Coming Home Network as mm -hmm. well, right? Because yeah. suffering is a part of any spiritual journey. Okay. Right. Yeah. And we see that up close um, as we walk alongside those who are on the journey. Um, the cross is maybe different uh, for each person's journey. I mean, we also know that there's this, this tsunami of graces as well. So, you know, our Lord comes in not only to walk with us as we pick up those crosses in the journey into the church, but also just to bring us consolations also. Um, and uh, yeah. some of those consolations fall away as we uh, grow in the faith. Um, but we also see it in the conversion stories of those who've, who've already come in um, before us, and, and they talk about the things they struggled with, the things that were a bit agonizing maybe at times, um, but that our Lord walked with them there. Um, so he meets us where we are, wherever we are on the journey, and, and however strong we've become in in carrying our suffering, which seems like, you know, uh, like a paradox, because you have to grow in this strength of being able to pick up your cross uh, in suffering. So even as you may be physically or emotionally becoming um, more debilitated, you know, as I talked about my father becoming more debilitated in both those capacities, you have to grow in your strength of being able to offer it up to Christ so that it becomes that efficacious yeah. gift um, that, that 
brings about graces in, in the, the mystical body of Christ. Yeah. And we're each other's strength in that too. Right. I, and I always think of in this regard how, you know, Aristotle, you know, and the Western tradition since then has pointed out that the life of virtue is a, a communal activity. And so the ability to carry the cross well, you know, we have, as you said, we, we grow in that ability, you know, and we sort of that, that strength builds in us as we cooperate with God's grace. But that example in other people is such an important thing to hear their stories, to hear what happened to you when you persevered through that suffering and to see, as you say, the grace and the change. That's such an important part of our ability to keep pressing onward. And it's like you looked into my my notes for today because the last episode um, I talked about how I had no context for um, this part of the theology of suffering, and I, I gained it by reading the Dark Night of the Soul by Saint John of the Cross and um, piecing together just the experience of my father's suffering. Uh, but this time, we're going to talk more about how important it is um, as we're in RCIA, as we're coming into the church, um, and we're, we've been taught this very recent um, understanding of the theology of suffering that we now look to cradle Catholics um, or converts who've been around a while who uh, they suffer well. And we even talk as Catholics about a happy death, which, of course, is a Protestant that wouldn't have made any any sense to me because what kind of a death could be happy? But it kind of goes along with that, that you suffer well. And then if you learn to suffer well, then you can also have a happy death um, because you've learned to walk with Christ and all the crosses that you've experienced. So... Um, I think where I'll pick up today um, maybe is just to mention that last time I talked a lot about my father's suffering. He was a Protestant minister, and I had a front row seat in his suffering and death, and that put the question in my mind then um, of, I think I don't have a full theology of suffering because this is not making sense to me. So I started with his personal library, which I inherited, and then um, some of the, the books that I was reading also, and I went to find more books, and I found Dark Night of the Soul. Um, but last time I didn't talk too much about Scripture, so it's, it's kind of important, especially those coming from um, strong Bible backgrounds as uh, converts, um, to bring in some Scripture. And it's I'm going to start with uh, one of those verses that we tended to overlook because it didn't make any sense to us. Um, as Protestants, and I, I have to read off of this because I want to get it right. It's from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. And I, I believe that my father came to a point where he could actually say this and understand it, if not on a theological level, on an experiential level. St. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions or Christ's sufferings for the sake of the body that is the church of which I became a minister. So my father was not, you know, he wasn't Catholic clergy. He was a Protestant minister. And we're all, you know, in uh, the 
the ministry of all believers, um, priesthood of all believers. So we, we all can say this. We all can say, I rejoice in my sufferings, which, again, probably doesn't make too much sense. But St. Paul says we can do this, and we can make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And later on, I'm going to talk about what is lacking. Because as a Protestant, I would have said it's the perfect sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the most perfect. It is the perfect sacrifice. So how could it be lacking? But it's not a matter of... um, It's a matter of what is it that we can add to it, and that is love. That there can never be enough love. So it's it's a matter of um, we help complete what... Christ's gift of love by adding our yeah. suffering by way of love. So, yeah, I wanted to throw in there something that always comes to mind with with some of these paradigm shifts in belief. Right. That um, sometimes we have to question our kind of our background paradigm shift. Like we encounter a bit of theology, a teaching, and we say that doesn't that doesn't seem right. God wouldn't do that. Christ wouldn't do that. That seems obscene. That seems too low. That seems weird that God would become a man or that God would become bread or that, you know, right. that these things that, that are presented to us. And we have to examine kind of our, our, our paradigm there. God didn't have to do any of these things, right? God doesn't have to answer our prayers. God doesn't mm-hmm. have to, he didn't have to come to a virgin in Bethlehem. He chose these means of showing his love, of redeeming us, of, of, um, yeah, of, of bringing about our redemption. He chose these means of doing so. And so too with this notion of priesthood of all believers and our, our making up what is lacking uh, in Christ's sacrifice. Yeah, it's a weird concept. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way, but God has chosen that. He, is, he's, he says to his children, I want, you to, I want you to become a part of this. I want you to take part in your own salvation and in, your salvation, in the salvation of the world, not through your power, but because you are participating in Christ's redemptive act. And so the question is, can God do that? Well, yeah, he's the boss. Like (laughs) if he decides it works that way, it works that way. And so we're not claiming something to ourselves. Again, not not claiming that there's something fundamentally lacking in essence in Christ's sacrifice, but that he chooses to invite us to carry the cross with him. And that's Mm -hmm. that's an amazing thing. And it's and it's by that participation that we are saved as well. It's it's amazing. Right, and and some of the things that I've read also, um, and I think Pope John Paul II even talked about this, it's not that it's deficient, um, our Lord's suffering <clears throat> on the cross. It's not that it's deficient in any way. Right. But it is is incomplete because we haven't completed, you know, this life on earth. We in, are right. participating in the body of Christ. And in participating in the body of Christ, we must add our gift of love to it, our, our gift of, of everything, whether it's, you know, you're mopping the floor. Yeah. Um, saints have talked about that, whether it's your joys. Um, and, and I'm going to go ahead and jump in here with something I was going to cover a little bit later because it really fits. My first teaching position um, as a Catholic religion teacher was uh, I started with the lower grades. So I was in middle school. And the school I was at had uh, mass three days a week. And after the mass, they would say the daily offering. And that, I think, showcases what we're saying here is everything 
that is a human experience can be offered up as, as an offering to, to Christ. Let's see if I can do it off the top of my head. Um, oh, my Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I wish to offer all my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings, all that this day may bring, be it good or bad, for the conversion of sinners, and reparation to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary, in union with the sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world and the intentions of our Holy Father, Pope Francis. And that's it. Um, and I think that that was the first time, John Mark, where I realized that when St. Paul says in another letter um, that we're to pray without ceasing, how can one even do that? How can you live life um, and go about your responsibilities in this world um, if you have to pray all the time? Well, this is how. Um, and later I realized those who suffer, they have probably the best opportunity to do, to fulfill that, to pray without suffering or pray without ceasing because they are constantly suffering. And so if they are offering up their suffering to the, to the work of Christ on the cross, then they are by definition praying all the time. Uh, and so, and, and I started to see that I wish my father had had that. I wish he had had access to this amazing reality that what he was experiencing, because you remember it was like, all he wanted to know is, Christ, why did this happen? And if he could have been formed to know that all suffering has meaning, none of it is meaningless, because it is all offered up um, through the mystical body of Christ. And there's yeah. another verse that reminds me of something um, that my father could say, I think, uh, at the end, and that is from the book of Job, which says in chapter 19, verses 25 through 26, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last I shall see God. Um, and I don't know how much I spent in the last episode doing uh, talking about this, but there, there are basically two things that this kind of suffering can yield in in our lives. Um, and one is to prepare us for eternal life, uh, which brings to mind uh, the book of James, you know, where it's like, if a man endures his trials well and stands the test, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, that he uh, inherits, you know, eternal life. That is, this is a gift from God for those who have suffered well or, or stood the test, withstood the test. Um, and so you... You can be prepared for eternal life, or you can be pre prepared for what comes next. Uh, so for him, it was eternal life, and for me, it was the journey into the church and what would come next for me. Um, and, and I would tag on also to that the third thing, which is we who suffer well in the body of Christ, in this mystical body, we may never know what the graces are that come from that, but we also participate in the sufferings of Christ and yield graces, the church says, for the entire mystical body of Christ and indeed for the entire world. Um, I'd also like to uh, stay with my notes here for just a second because there's a passage um, in the catechism that I think is really important here. And really, John Mark kind of goes to one of the things at the end of the last episode that we were talking about. And this passage in the catechism is paragraph 165. And it takes a little bit from Lumen Gentium and a little bit 
Redemptorist Mater. And as a convert, those converts out there, you will understand what I say when I say I don't know if I pronounced that Latin correctly. Um, I'm always sort of like <laughs> looking over my shoulder like, did I do that right? Um, so hopefully I did. Anyway, it says, The Virgin Mary, who in her pilgrimage of faith, walked into the night of faith in sharing in the darkness of her son's suffering and death. And so that really shows, you know, John Mark, what we were saying last time towards the end, and that is that you can be the one suffering, and you can offer that up. Or if you are walking alongside someone who is suffering, and you incur suffering because of what you're experiencing, you can also offer that up as well. And um, so, you know, it's talking about the Blessed Virgin Mary who encountered the most difficult suffering in watching her son suffer. Yeah, even those words, right, um, compassion, sympathy, I can't remember which one. I mean, one of them means to suffer with, right? Is that com- compassion? I think. Com- yes. I believe that's, I believe in the roots of that word because that's, that is this important aspect of love that you are, are identifying with the experience of, of the beloved. That when, uh, you mentioned last time, my wife has still not yet had her baby. <laughs> We're still waiting <laughs> as of this episode. Still, <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah, and so we're but we're getting ready for that experience again. It's experience. She, it's it's mostly on her. I'm but I'm suffering with her. Right. I'm, I'm I'm trying to accompany her, and there's a helplessness in that. You mm. know, when someone else is suffering in your life, um, there's a there, there's a, a similar feeling of helplessness because it's like I I can't take this away from you. All I can do is be with you in this. Right. Um, but it's they're both aspects of. Discipleship that we need to not just have happened to us, but kind of turn to begin to embrace because that's it's part of that journey. Right, and it, I think it does um, it does start early. I've had four children, and and the the last couple of weeks where um, I wasn't getting very much sleep, my husband wasn't either. So um, you already are starting to um, walk that journey with the cross of parenting. And, um, and it changes, the cross changes, but it never goes away. Right. So, well, I mean, this really fits the next verse. I, di- I, I didn't plan this out because a lot of this is just kind <laughs> of us just having a conversation. But Second Corinthians sure. 2.19, St. Paul also says, But my grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So when we're feeling weak, when we're feeling like we can't do this, when we're walking with someone who's suffering and it's like, oh, I, I can't, I cannot, I cannot watch this anymore. I need a break from this, you know, that his power is made perfect in those moments when we are weak. Yeah. I've been reflecting this past year uh, a bit on kind of the irony in the gospel when Jesus says, I came not for the righteous, not to call the righteous, but for sinners, right? The, what's the irony there? The irony is that there aren't really those two groups. You know, when he's when he's speaking to that audience, there were people in that audience that thought to themselves, and sometimes I think we think to ourselves, oh, well, right, he didn't come for us. Like, you know, like we got it all together. It's those other people out there. But that's not the case. No. There's the sinners, and then there's those who acknowledge their sinners. Mm-hmm. But I think we can expand that a little bit. Like I'm, those who acknowledge their weakness you know, who who was healed in the gospel? Those people who came to Christ and said, I want to be healed. And whether it was of a, of sin, 
explicitly or whether it was just of a, of a wound or a weakness, just some aspect of their human brokenness, those who came and acknowledged their weakness, that's where the power was experienced. And so we all have weakness, we all have sin, we all experience suffering, but do we really bring it and unite it to Christ? Mm -hmm. That's what he's inviting us to do, not to carry it on our own, but to bring it to him. Right, and, and that um, brings to mind something that Brother Rex passed along to me because he knew we were going to have this conversation. Um, yeah. It requires a humility. Um, even suffering and suffering well requires a humility um, where you don't like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm stoic. I, you know, I can do this. Um, but that we recognize that we can only do it by the power of Christ. Uh, and to avoid what may happen or a pitfall of, of pride that um, I'm suffering, look at what, I, what I'm enduring, and I have this thing or, or whatever it is, and I'm offering it up to Christ, and, and it's sort of like we're not supposed to blow that horn. We're supposed to humbly, humbly um, go through our suffering. And I think it was Thomas Merton that he was, was referen referencing there about don't let your suffering be a, a matter of pride, but a matter of humility, mm -hmm. allowing Christ to come into it. And I think that's another aspect of Christ coming into it and walking with us. Um, I think what I'm going to do now is, is talk to and maybe really reach out to those who are in RCIA right now uh, and encountering crosses and sufferings that go with turning towards Christ and coming into deeper relationship with Christ and pursuing this journey to the sacramental life of the church. Because you and I both, John Mark, know that when we walk with people that are coming into the church, they almost always have crosses and sufferings. And one of the ones that, and, and they can be an array of things, just very um, specific to each person, individual person, but one that many people in our culture today are facing is the, the situation of a potentially non-sacramental marriage, uh, where they have marriage or marriages that came before, and they've remarried, and so they have this obstacle, this impediment of a previous marriage. And I can remember John Mark going into um, the local Catholic church after I'd read those Carmelite saints and after I'd seen Mary Beth Kremsky on the journey home and I knew that I wanted, you know, to, to become Catholic, to have what they had as a spirituality and, um, to be grounded in a faith that could protect that. You know, I, I knew the, the pitfalls of mysticism in general and I wanted to make sure that it was good, holy spirituality. So I walked into the local Catholic church, and I said, I think I want to become Catholic. And the secretary said, well, we can help you with that. And she ushered me into the, the priest's um, office. And I thought he'd be like, oh, this is great, right? Uh, we, we don't get very many preacher's kids. How exciting this is that you've just wandered off the street and come in here. Well, he talked with me, and as soon as he found out that I had a previous marriage and I was married again, he said, we're going to have to address that. And um, I was like, uh, I, I don't know if I said something or if it just he could tell that I was resistant to that, um, looking at that marriage. Um, and he said, oh, no, it'll be healing. And I'm like, what does a priest who's never been married, what does he know about, you know, a difficult marriage? 
And, and then he took me into the RCIA leader's room office after that. And the RCIA leader said the same thing. Oh, this is going to be so healing for you. And he, I'm like, I'm sure you have a wonderful marriage, but, you know, you can't possibly know. So anyway, I really did not yeah. want to open that Pandora's box. And in all honesty, yeah. um, it was back when they would give you papers to fill out. And then it's probably now online. I don't know because this was 17 years ago. But um, I went home and I put those papers in a, a desk drawer. And I thought, you know, let's see if I have any issues with Catholic teaching. And I, I decide I don't want to come in. Um, and then I'll never have to look at those. Well, after, and I talked about this in, in the first episode, after I came to embrace the Blessed Mother and all the teachings about her, which I knew that would be the obstacle if I had one, um, after I knew in just this wonderful moment of grace that she is everything the church teaches, I went home and I pulled, um, I pulled out those, that paperwork. And because I had dragged my feet, um, I did not, the annulment didn't come through before Easter vigil, which is why, and I said in the last episode, I didn't come in until August, uh, the 14th of 2005. So, so the situation was, and all of us who have previous marriage, we are used to, because of divorce, we are used to, oh, it's his fault, or oh, it's his fault. And, and we sort of expect that that's what the annulment process is going to be. Um, and it's not. It's actually looking at where you were at the moment and where your, your spouse was at the moment of making that sacrament. Were you ready for it? And you have witnesses um, who knew you at the time who weigh in. So it's a really it's a it's a, has a lot of parts to it. Um, but I didn't want to look at this marriage because Jean Marc, this was a very difficult marriage. I married very young, and he was eventually a United Methodist pastor, but he was not a United Methodist pastor when I met him. Um, he was only a year and a half older than I was, and I was only eighteen. In fact, I'd only been eighteen one month, so I was quite young. And we ended up having three children uh, within the first five years of marriage. And um, in 2012, the Department of Justice um, defined rape as it can be force or lack of consent. And so this is before that. So it wasn't actually something that the DOJ had um, established as an official definition but in that marriage, there were a number of times where, um, by that definition, there was marital rape happening. And, and mm. the, our third child was conceived in, in that. So I was of the mindset, well, he did this and he did that and there were other things. And, and I was like, I'm, I'm without guilt. Um, but you have to dig deep and look at, who you are and who you were. And I was not where I, I should have been to make a sacrament, besides being really young. Um, my parents moved. My father was a pastor and moved us right before my senior year of high school. And those who are pastors out there and pastors' children out there, you know how difficult it is to be a pastor's kid and be in a pastor's family. Um, and I was quite angry with my parents. So really was not in a good place to to make the sacrament of marriage. And so here I was later. 
I don't want to open that box up. I don't even think it's like Pandora's box where once you unpack the whole box, I think hope was the last thing in the box in, in that mythology. Um, I didn't think there would be anything good at the bottom of that box. But the priest was right. Um, the RCIA leader was right. I learned a lot about me. I worked through a lot of things. And to be honest with you, it really is uh, like in James where we, we were just talking about if you stand the test, if you're willing to go through the test, if you're willing to, and RCIA will have times where you have to um, press through. As we are right now in Lent, you press through the cross, you move through the cross um, to, to Easter. So yeah. when the word did come back, and it was July 2nd of that year, that my first marriage was non-sacramental, um, the first thing I felt was, Joy, great joy, because I can now receive Christ. And if it had come, come back otherwise, it would have been an unpleasant conversation with my husband that I want to live with you as brother and sister. And um, because the church sees this first marriage as being a sacrament and ours is not. Well, that's not how it turned out. It turned out that I could receive Christ. I could receive Christ in the sacrament. And that was everything to me. And the second thing that was important to me was sharing the good news with my husband. And he was cutting grass. Um, we had four acres of grass at the time. And he was on the tractor, and I, I walked out to him. And just keep in mind, he had no intentions of becoming Catholic. He was Southern Baptist and was going to die a Southern Baptist. But when I showed him the paper, and when I told him that the church can now convalidate our, or bless our marriage, there was joy on his face. And um, he's, yeah. he's a man of few words, so he didn't really explain wh what the joy was. But um, I think it's that he knew that at least the Catholic Church looked at me and looked at our marriage and saw this as the only marriage in the eyes of God. And, um, and I think that that was a real moment of grace also for him. And so it ended up being yeah. one of those things that really breathed life and grace into our marriage. Um, and I would, I would appeal to those who are on the journey into yeah. the church. If, if, if you have a previous marriage and this is something that is kind of stressing you out, to look at it as, as a suffering and that trust, trust and offer it up that um, Christ loves you and he wants to bring you yeah. to him in this most blessed sacrament and um, and leave it to him. And and the RCIA leader kept saying that to me, Denise, just trust, just wait. But it, it can be a, a real cross, Jean-Marc. So. Yeah. Uh, it's, that's a beautiful conclusion to the end of that difficult, you know, part of your life. You know, and it's, it's interesting. It's a good example of how sometimes people can look in at the church and see her sacraments and see her, the annulment process, for example, or the rules around baptism or communion and say, that's what's with all these rules and this paperwork and this stuff like that. And from the outside, it can look kind of weird. From the inside, I think we, what we would say is that the church takes her, the authority that Christ has given the church very seriously, but also its limits very seriously. The church's the exertion of the church's authority is actually a minimal thing in the sense mm -hmm. that church doesn't make up truth. It's there to be guided by the Holy Spirit to declare what is or isn't true. 
because it actually is or isn't true. And so with the sacraments, you know, one way we could even think about characterizing the sacraments is there there are these moments of of certainty that the Lord gives us. Mm. I mean, can we, you know, before Christ gives us the gift of of reconciliation, of confession, could people come to God and express their repentance and apologize and in theory be forgiven? Well, well certainly. I mean, God can do whatever he wants, right. but he gives us in confession, he gives us this this certain sign of a spiritual reality that when you go through the sacrament, you can know that God is there and that through the sacrament you are forgiven. You you go to this place of certainty. And so too with the other sacraments, with the Eucharist. I mean, again, the disciples encountered Christ, the Israelites, uh, the Jewish people encounter God, but Christ gives us this unique way of being certain that we are coming into this intimate communion with him through the Eucharist. Well, so too with marriage. I mean, the church takes that reality so, so seriously that it, it's when we have you know, situations like you described, we have this process of annulment, which says we want, we want to know what was the truth about this, this marriage, you know, because marriage is a real reality. And so uh, if we're looking back at a, at a past marriage, was it a true sacrament? The church takes that process of, of evaluating that very seriously because it's all about kind of, again, guided by the Holy Spirit, leading us to a place of, of certain encounter with Christ. And so it, it can look weird from the outside, but it's, it's actually a very beautiful reality, the sacramental life of the church. And I think one of the things that, um, that I look back on that it yielded is clearly marital grace. So the sacraments, right. they give us sacramental grace. And I was able to then look back at what had happened before and say, I'm not incapable of marriage, um, but without Christ, I am. Without marital grace, I am. And in that situation, right. I was because it wasn't a sacrament. I I need. I'm standing in 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 the the need for grace in order yeah. for me to have this lifelong uh, relationship <clears throat> with another person who is also a sinner. I think that the church in her wisdom does permit us to go through this this suffering because anytime you look at yourself that clearly, it's going to be a little bit of suffering. You know, it's kind of like when we talk about purgatory. When, anytime you have to let go of your attachments to things in this life, there will be suffering. Not the kind of suffering, of course, in hell, but there is suffering. And C.S. Lewis even talks about that. And I think he says something like, everything that has been good in my life has come with a, a bit of a degree of suffering with it. So I, I anticipate that this is what purgatory will be like. Well, my journey in RCIA also had other crosses. And the next cross that I encountered, um, and the only other one that I'm really going to talk about today that has some, there were people involved in that, is when others don't understand. And this is another common uh, suffering that people going through RCIA experience, especially when they come from families that are full of pastors and um, missionaries and those who have been to Bible college and seminary and things like that. Because they're not going to, but they're not going to see what you're doing as being following Christ into his church. 
and uh, they may go toe to toe, want to go toe to toe with you. They may want to pull you back. They may see what you're doing. Maybe even as you know, joining it's it's so terrible. But there are some out there who believe the church is the whore of Babylon, and and they may even say these sorts of things to you. In it, it will be heartbreaking. It does hurt the heart because you have come to realize and are coming to realize that this is the church that Jesus founded. Um, and when they are in your own family, these those that, that don't understand, um, I think one of the things to cling to is that Jesus promises that we, you know, if we, and, and you're not giving them up. They're still in your life and still in your world. But if you lose father, mother, brother, sister, that you will receive, again, it's that, that promise that if you are willing to suffer that you, and withstand the test, that there will be abundant life on the other side. And I have found that to be true. In these 17 years, I found it to be true that I still have my family, and many of them did not follow me to the church, um, but I have also in the body of Christ, I have brothers and sisters. And those who, of us who are on staff, and we have staff meetings every day and staff prayer every day, it feels like a family, um, and you're not, you're not left you know, on your own. He does fill that in with multitudes. Yeah. Um, but my uh, my brother, I think he was the first one. He was great in that he um, was willing to be a witness for my annulment. And he may have felt that that sort of gave him the leverage to be able to then, after it was after that was over, that he could then come in and say, but I don't really agree with what you're doing. Um, and his wife was a cradle Catholic, and she... Um, she joined my brother's church um, when they got married or shortly after. So he wrote me um, an email, and it was long, and it was lengthy, and it was a bit heartbreaking. And um, I had, you know, I wished he had actually, like, talked to me face-to-face. And I didn't write back because it just felt like sometimes it's, that's, you can't go through Maybe my life will show that this is true and beautiful and lovely and is changing me. I mean, I, I hope that that is true, that those around me see that. But I also didn't feel like, and I'm, I'm sure those who are on the journey can agree with this, I didn't feel strong enough to be able to address the theological questions that he was saying. I'd come to the place where I knew what the church said is true, but I hadn't yet come to the place where I could really be an apologist, you know, and, and wear the apologist hat. So I had to kind of let that sit. And my mother was also, it was difficult for her. She came from an anti-Catholic um, background, um, and I think it was hard for her, but she, again, didn't talk with me. She didn't even send me a letter. So, John Mark, I had this idea that, if I gave her St. John of the Cross, Dark Night of the Soul, she would see, because she was there. She saw my dad suffer. She would then follow me into the church and be like, this is, now we know what he was going through and have the same radical experience that I had. And so I gave her the book, and she put it in her, the shelf on her uh, headboard to her bed. Months later, maybe even up to a year later, I'm not sure how much longer, it was, 
I was visiting. I was in her bedroom, and it still stayed. It was right there where uh, she had set it and hadn't cracked it open. And that was hurtful because this, this has been this amazing moment of grace for me. And to her, it wasn't even worth opening the book. Um, and certainly not worth discussing. And there were family members who also said that while she wouldn't talk to me about it, she would talk to them about how uh, we worship Mary, and she doesn't believe that, and um, different stories of things that were sort of anti-Catholic. And I, I would like, I would have liked to have had the conversation with her um, about the faith. And I think one of the things that was hard, and maybe this is also pride, but I thought if we could have a conversation, maybe I would have an opportunity to bring more family members into the church. But I've had to come to the place where I realize that's not my job. My job is not to argue other people into the faith. And that, that was a lesson that was really hard. Um, my husband was the, the biggest lesson on that. I really was trying to argue him into the faith. And in my defense... When you're coming to the church, the person you love most in this life is the one person you want to share that joy with, and um, you want to be able to receive the Eucharist with him. And he had basically, every time we would talk about the faith, it would turn towards Mary, and that for him, of course, was the biggest obstacle also, and we get in an argument. And it was a couple years after I had come into the church, so probably 2007, the summer of 2007, he uh, and I were arguing about Marian teachings, etc. And he quite angrily said, um, I'm never going to become Catholic, and you need to just accept that. And those were really hard words for me because he shut the door. The door was slammed shut um, with my hope that he would join me in the church. And I remember going to the bedroom and crying, and I didn't want him to see me cry. And I started that summer, it was late summer, I started that summer praying the rosary for his conversion and not talking with him about it. I mean, I didn't go silent. We we still talked with each other, et cetera. I just didn't try to argue him anymore into the faith. And I would just pray. And it was the following Christmas Eve that he came with me to Mass and... Um, and after I genuflected and kneeled and sat back down, and you have to go early on Christmas Eve because if you go late, you're not going to get a seat. Um, and so my husband was with us that day and um, or that evening, and he said, "So what do you pray for when when you when you pray when you kneel?" And I didn't want to tell him because I didn't want to have an argument right there on Christmas Eve. So. I said, you know, everything, everybody and stuff. But he's like, no, really, what do you pray for? And I, again, I was like, well, you and me, you know, the kids. And then he said point blank, no, what do you pray for? And I'm like, buddy, if you're going to ask me three times, I'm going to tell you exactly what I pray for. And I said, I pray for you that you will see the sacraments and especially the Eucharist as Christ, um, that it is Christ, and that you will long to receive him with me. And he opened up his, his suit coat, and he pulled out a Christmas card and handed it to me. And I opened it up, and in, in it he had written, um, I used to think that I would follow you anywhere. I would go up any mountain. I would go into any valley. Wherever you went, I would want to be there. And I had to ask myself recently, do I still love you that much? And the answer is yes, even more. So there's marital, marital grace, right? 
Um, and he said, so I'll be coming into the church this Easter vigil. Now, you got to know my husband. He doesn't do anything without being sure that this, you know, he, he would not just follow me in. Um, and I turned to him and I said, it's probably too late. You know, this is Christmas Eve. And he said, oh, no, I've been studying privately with our RCIA leader since last August. So right after I started praying the rosary and stopped arguing and came into the church and letting grace take over, um, he started privately studying. And when I asked him why, um, and I had been in the office so many times, like, well, how many do we have an RCIA this year? And Mr. Miller said, well, we only have one, so we're doing private study with him. That's, that's my husband. Um, and my husband <laughs> said, right, so my husband said, well, I knew that it would be harder for you if you knew that I looked into it and I started to truly study it. And then I realized I could never come in. Um, that would be harder for you than if I never told you that I'd tried. And he was right. He knew his wife very well. And that would have been an even bigger cross for me if I had the hope that he was trying and then um, he decided he couldn't. Um, there were a number of things, though, with with his journey uh, that were interesting. And, and I, I think it's important to say, like, for him, why did he come in? It wasn't just because of me and his love for me. He was studying uh, for his doctorate at that time. And he he said he paused to think, I show up for classes. And I trust that my professors have been vetted and that this school can confer a degree upon me when I complete my studies. And I had to ask myself, can I trust the church of 2,000 years that she has been vetted and that she can, if you will, confer the sacramental life of the church upon me? And, um, and so that was, that was his journey. But I think the thing that we both have, have realized, because I'll say to him, offer it up, and he's like, I have no idea what that means. Um, and I think for both of us, it's because <laughs> it's not something that you can put in a capsule and swallow. You have to look at other people around you who suffer well. And so for me, uh, the first encounter I had with that was the, the woman who became a very dear friend. We still email back and forth um, all the time. Mary Beth Krumsky, who was on the journey home. And John Mark, she has a chronic illness, and I'm not going to get into it because it's her private walk with Christ, but my ability over these 17 years to be able to email back and forth with her and know that there are good days and bad days and good weeks and bad weeks and know how she offers that up um, that is how you learn it. You really do get your arms around it more when you, you get to see people who know how to do it and to do it well. And I remember one time early on saying to her, I asked the Lord for something that I could suffer for for you. That's what I said to her. And she came back with, oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> It's like, you don't, you don't do that. Cause it, she, I think she knew that was probably a little bit of, of uh, pride, right, or something. I don't know. But she said, when, when Christ wants to give you suffering, there's plenty of suffering in this world. Embrace it when it comes. 
but don't go begging for it. Um, and I think that that was wise. The other thing I think that's important I started to see is that those who were daily communicants um, that were receiving, and you get to know those who, who go to daily mass, um, I would, and, and frequently they're older because they during the time that they were working, they, they couldn't go. And so when retirement comes, they're able to go to daily mass. And you see people who go through illnesses, and you see people who suffer well, and you see people who have a happy death. So those of us who who didn't learn as our first language the language of um, Catholic theology in in all in all of its fullness, uh, we need to look at those who did, because this is very difficult. Like I said, it's not a capsule that you can swallow, a pill that you can take and you get it. Um, it really comes, I think, easiest and best to those for whom it was their first language. Yeah. I had other issues with social media, um, cousins who would come in, and you know, because I, I tend to post stuff, and especially now, you know, working with Coming Home Network, I post and repost things that we put out there. Um, and early on, they haven't done this lately, but I have cousins who would then come in and like, especially with Mary, is like, you know, Jesus said woman, what does this have to do with me, right, uh, at Cana? And um, also, who are my mother, my brothers, my sisters? You know, Jesus said these things. So clearly, he didn't have this close relationship with Mary that you're, you're showcasing here. And um, and there, I'd like to tell you, you go to the Coming Home Network, CHN Network, um, .org, and look at those convergence stories that have to do with the Blessed Mother because um, that's not what we're we're yeah. dipping into here today. But all of those There's some great stories. Yeah, yeah, some great stories that really get into the theology behind those things. And I have to say, Delmark, with regards to my family members, I did not handle it very well. Um, that too is a learning process. That that kind of suffering um, with those who know you best and they know your weaknesses, and they know your struggles. And they are also ones that you like. You want to pull in initially, maybe because of a little bit of pride. Look what I found is so great, and it is. Um, but I wish I could go back and handle it, some of those things better. And um, hopefully I'm, I'm growing and have you know wisdom to share after 17 years with, with those who are coming into the church. Um, yeah. I remember going to confession to confess this very yeah. thing. And, um, of course, you're learning how to confess things also because you're supposed to confess your sins and not anybody else's sins. And I, I'm sure I was saying something about, well, they did this or they said that or whatever. I, I heard through the grapevine, blah, blah, blah. And he said from Hebrews, well, you haven't yet suffered to the point of you know, shedding blood, which is in Hebrews. And I'm like, ooh, yeah, you're right. Um, I haven't. And I can handle this. This is, it, it hurts and it's hard, um, but it is not suffering, you know, to the point of shedding of, of blood. I think this is a really good place, John Mark, to, to say that the verses that have to do with suffering, I would have thought as a Protestant had only to do with persecution for the faith. 
that I would not have had a place for it to be emotional suffering or physical suffering or any kind of financial suffering. Um, that we, it was so much easier to say the verses in the Bible that talk about suffering well and enduring your trials, etc., as being suffering for the faith, um, that was an easy out because we didn't know people who suffered for the, we didn't know people who were persecuted for their faith. And I thought about this now on the other side, and I, I realized that no, it is, it's any kind of suffering, thanks be to God, any kind of suffering can be offered up to the cross when you're part of the mystical body of Christ. But I also think that as Protestants, we, we didn't have the opportunity to to endure persecution because anytime something would be a little bit uncomfortable in the culture, um, we would eventually adapt to the culture. So Catholics understand that artificial birth control is wrong. And in the 19, up to 1930, all Protestant denominations did as well. But when the culture started to shift and that opportunity for persecution maybe was coming along, it became more comfortable to buy into the argument of the culture. And I think that that has also happened with women's ordination. That has also happened with um, abortion. Uh, and that has also happened with gay marriage. Anytime the culture has a different perspective, uh, I think in time, uh, Protestant de denominations, one by one, tend to instead of in, see that as a kind of persecution, they change that discomfort to being um, one with the culture. Um, and I, I mean, that's a shame because you don't have the opportunity then in our American culture to suffer um, persecution. But it is also physical. Yeah. So it, it's yeah, It's interesting, the connection there between kind of the corporate example versus individual. I mean, that's what, on an individual level, when we get to a, a point of suffering, there's always that opportunity either to turn away from it mm -hmm. and in, in, so, in some way, shape, or form, and that's, that's our sin, rather than to endure it, to embrace it well, and to do what is right in the midst of it. And so that too happens with, with bodies of people, you know, rather than enduring a difficult thing for, for a for a good, uh, giving in and compromising. And um, yeah, I was thinking earlier too about, I can't remember something you said, made me think about um, a priest friend of mine, actually not a priest friend, my brother, Father Peter, was mm. telling me the other day uh, a bit of advice of when, when we suffer, our Lord experienced the whole gambit of suffering in his life, you know, the whole gambit of difficult experiences and situations. And so when we we encounter one of these, I mean, you were sharing some of the family stuff. You know, Christ had that. We have those examples in Scripture. We can place ourselves right there in the Scripture with our Lord and say, He He too experienced this sort of suffering, but He pressed on. But He stayed close to God the Father. He He continued with the work that God had had given to Him, and so. That, that gives us, I mean, it's, it's so interesting, you know, the offer it up, the redemptive suffering, even the title of this show, Deep in Christ, it's all of the same sort of theme here, that this is in an important way, one of the deepest ways that we 
that we go deep in Christ in the Christian life is that we we uh, suffer with Christ. He invites us to pick up the cross with him. And as you said, sometimes we're waiting for the big moments, so the big persecution. Mm. When they come for our martyrdom, that's when right. we're, we're waiting for that. Maybe we even imagine ourselves ready for that. But we're not always ready for just the little the little mo- day-to-day moments that we can be turning over to Christ. And if we're not faithful in the little things, we shouldn't really be expecting to be faithful in the big right. things. I think that's one of the things that is so beautiful about Lent. We can practice through the liturgical calendar of the year and Lent specifically. We can practice offering something up. We can practice uh, a, a penance of some kind. And in learning how to do that and doing it with the whole church, we are practicing really what we are called to do when our individual sacrifices and sufferings come along. Um, that we then automatically, it's almost like, what do they call it, muscle memory? It's kind of muscle memory, <laughs> right? Where you, yeah. you've you learned how to do this, and you may not do it the first minute it comes. You may not even do it the first week or month. But we practice this so that in muscle memory, even if it's not in Lent, it's a Lent at a different time of it, the year for us, Specifically, we offer it up, and we offer it to the cross of Christ, and we offer it up for the mystical body of Christ because we're so used to walking and journeying with the mystical body of Christ. Um, And I think one of the amazing things, if you dip into like St. Augustine and some of the other uh, church fathers and uh, writings of the church on suffering, they talk about the suffering of Christ on the cross is the the marital bed, and even the it is finished at the end is the consummation where we realize that this is the bridegroom offering his love for his bride, and that he has walked into, with his humanity, he's walked into our suffering, the suffering world. Um, and one of the things I actually wrote was uh, a station of the cross on for a suffering world because we are so suffering. I mean, right now, when you think of Ukraine and you see the suffering there. And so we realize that Jesus Christ, God himself, chose to come into this broken world and redeem suffering. Um, <clears throat> and it may not seem like... Uh, it's redemptive because it's you know, you're going to suffer it anyway, right? One of the arguments is you're still going to have this illness, or you're still going to die. You're still so why is this redemptive? Well, it's redemptive because Christ entered into it, and He is. I love what Father Groeschel said. It's like I am. I was saved. I'm being saved, and by God's mercy, hope to be saved. So it's like past, present, future kind of thing, not a one and done. And the same thing is true with um, our journey with him uh, through suffering. It's I have suffered with him. I am suffering this Lent with him. And I will suffer with him. And he has entered into it and made it new and redeemed it. And the beauty is, yes, original sin has caused this in the world. But because Christ came, he has made it He has made it resurrection language. He has made it redemptive. He has made our ability to unite ourselves mystically to the body of Christ 
and make each and every suffering a prayer, which is why we can do the, the daily offering. It's on so many levels is super complicated, and yet at the same time, it's a mystery that a little child can receive. Um, I remember when my daughter, and, and, and she came into the church the year after I did, so a year before her father did. So she was in first, first grade, I think, when she came into the church. And so in her childhood, she wasn't a cradle Catholic, but I, I think she's like, like you, John Mark, where she probably doesn't have much memory before, but yet she's not a cradle Catholic. Um, right. But she didn't have the inherited biases that I, I had, like with Mary, etc. And I remember when she would get sick, um, I wanted her to have this theology early on. And so when she would get sick, I would say, um, honey, think of something that you want to pray for. It was too theoretical for me to say, offer it up to Christ for the whole good of the whole church. So I would make it very concrete. I'd say, who do you want to pray for? Who's on your heart? And I want you to offer to Jesus what you're going through right now for that. And then she started to realize that the, the entire mystical body of Christ could offer grace for that specific thing. And sometimes she'd pick someone who was hungry in, um, I don't know, a country in Africa or something. And, and sometimes it would be something specific or someone specific that she knew. And I think that is one of those things that cradle Catholic families, they understand. Um, and we have to, it was new to me. I had to actually step out of my comfort zone to have these conversations with her um, and with my husband. Um, but we need to do that. We need to bring it into the conversation. Those of us who are yeah. on the way into the church, we need to start to look at other people who are suffering well and how they do it. Um, and I think that is that is the most important takeaway. Yeah. It's not my story. It's not the things that I've, I've been through um, or the struggles that I've had in any specific manner. It's that we need to learn from one another how to do this. And we also need to have strength from one another, as we do in Lent, when the whole body of Christ is, is going through this, um, to know that yeah. we can and we are invited by Christ to take this thing that's so messy, this world of suffering that's so difficult, that is, is a result of original sin, and realize it was redeemed, it's being redeemed, and it will be redeemed, and we can offer it up um, as redemptive suffering, as the bride of Christ engaging with the suffering of the bridegroom. That's so beautiful, Denise. And as you said, that communal element of it, that's what we hope to provide here at the Coming Home Network International. Um, you know, many of our members are, are new to the church, new to the Catholic Church, or many of them are in our CAA, like you shared today, or they're, you know, they're, they're far off, but the, the Holy Spirit's touching their heart and at least asking them to consider, you know, the claims of the church, you know, consider their, their background. And again, whatever stage of the spiritual journey that doesn't end after you become Catholic, mm -hmm. whatever stage yeah. you're on, again, the suffering is all along the way, um, but we're meant to suffer together as the church, as the people of God. And uh, we're a network because we're trying to do this together. You know, wherever, whatever stage you're on, the daily task remains the same. We stay deep in Christ. We keep going deeper into Christ. And so 
Um, I thank you so much for sharing your story, Denise. And we're going to continue talking a little bit more next time, you know, but uh, thank you for your story and for your work here at the Coming Home Network. Again, you're a member of the pastoral care team here at the Coming Home Network. So you're walking with people who are on the journey. And just as a reminder, again, if you're someone out there, if you're thinking about becoming Catholic, if you're somewhere along this journey, we want to walk the journey with you. So check out chnetwork.org for resources and videos and the community. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. So once again, thanks for joining us for this episode of Deep in Christ. We'll talk to you again next week. God bless. God bless.